Welcome to the Redeemer Central podcast. Redeemer Central is a church community in Belfast seeking to practice the way of Jesus and work for the peace and good of our city. For more information, please visit RedeemerCentral.com. morning and uh, thanks Dave for that introduction. As Dave said, over the past couple of weeks we've been looking at these ancient practices and we're looking at how uh, relevant they are to our modern day and it's my task today to speak about Sabbath delight and what I usually do if I hear a word you know that they have to do a bit of work on I'll do a word association with it and maybe get a blank piece of paper and write down all the kind of words that come to mind associated with that word and that's what I did with the word delight. And the first thing that came to mind, I'm not sure if any of you'll remember, there used to be a little dessert called Angel Delight. Do you remember it? And used to came, it's still there, still on the shelves. It comes in all different flavors, strawberry, chocolate, banana, and it's like a kind of a sweet mousse, and uh, it's really cheap and easy to make. And I remembered one day I was actually looking to buy a packet of Angel Delight, and I think it was in Sainsbury's, and I couldn't seem to find it, and I stopped the woman. There was a woman kind of casually strolling along with her trolley, and I thought, she looks pretty comfortable in the shop. I'll ask her where it is. And I said, excuse me, do you know where I could find some angel delight? And she jerked around and gave me a really good hard stir, and she said to me, are you trying to hit on me? <laughs> My stomach nearly fell out onto the floor. When I located the Strawberry Angel Delight in aisle five, I walked past her again and she said, oh, I see that you really were looking for the Angel Delight. You can't be too careful these days. The Delight kind of fell out of the Angel Delight for me that day, but uh, I hope that's not your experience this morning as we look at Sabbath Delight. So just as a kind of a baseline, I'm going to read to you from Matthew's Gospel, chapter 11. And Dave spoke on this verse the very first week we began Sabbath And uh, this is kind of um, where we must begin. It's to lay a foundation as to what we're going to speak about this morning. So Matthew 11, verse 28 to 30. Jesus said, Come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. I'm sure many of us in this room uh, will be well acquainted with this verse. Some of us could probably even quote it by heart. It's one of the great consolation texts of all time. It's a text that you sometimes see posted on billboards or on the backs of buses. Sometimes you'll find it worked into stained glass or even stitched into needlework and hung as tapestries in church sanctuaries. You'll find it printed onto bookmarks, well-wishing cards. I've even seen it carved onto oaken pulpits before and little hospital chapels and mission halls. It's just this wonderful promise, a comforting word that many of us turn to whenever it feels like our burdens are too many to bear. Whenever you've given it your best and your best has failed and you're ready to collapse like a heap in the corner. This then is the promise that offers the hope of help Help from a God that offers to lift the heavy load and to exchange it for a lighter yoke, one that's easier to carry and beneath which you will not collapse. It's no wonder then that this text becomes one of those verses that we kind of 
often lift out of the Bible's pages as a standalone promise. But as we often say in this church that in order to understand or see the scripture clearly, you've always got to be able to see it and read it and understand it within its context. Because a text without a context can be a pretext. And then you can use it to justify anything. And so maybe whenever we look at this text together, we'll see that actually it meant something very different whenever Jesus first said it. And so to frame it today, when you look back in the previous chapter, Matthew chapter 11, you'll see that Jesus had just finished a preaching mission to uh, several Galilee cities. But his welcome there had been less than warm. They rejected his mission. They spurned his miracles. And the reason was because the people in those cities, occupied as they were by the ruling power of the day, Rome, the people in those cities were smart and they were well off and they were very capable. Their economies were good. Their religious institutions were working well. And they didn't need any help from Jesus, let alone anyone else. And so whatever gift he'd hoped to give them, they declined to take. Now, of course, no one likes to be snubbed. And so in this 11th chapter, we read three responses from Jesus. Number one, he heaped powerful reproaches on those cities that didn't welcome him. Woe to you, he said, Chorazin and Capernaum and Bethsaida. Woe to you. And he upbraided them. He said, you were given a great privilege, but you thought you were better than that. That was his first response. Second response was to thank God for showing things to simple people that often the wise and understanding people cannot see. So the folks in those cities were sophisticated and they thought they knew better and so the truth passed them by. And instead it came to simple ordinary folks, just five-eighths and Joe Bloggs and Jane Smiths because their hearts were open and humble and because truth doesn't come by human wisdom or by natural intelligence, but it comes by divine revelation. In other words, the only way that you can know God is if God chooses to be known by you. And so Jesus thanked God that that truth was revealed to the humble-hearted. And then the third response was to offer to lighten the load of all those carrying heavy burdens. Presumably the burdens of those humble and simple people whose shoulders were laden down by the burdens put upon them by the proud and arrogant ones. Now, what kind of burdens did he mean? Well, did he mean a physical burden? Did he mean like a literal burden of sticks or bricks? Well, being first century Palestine, it might have been so. Did, did he mean the increasing weight of Roman occupation? Did he mean... What we often take it to mean, the invisible load of life's cares and sorrows and griefs. Is that what he meant? Well, possibly did he mean something else? Well, since this is Matthew's gospel, undoubtedly, it's likely that Jesus meant religious burdens as well. Did you know that Matthew is the most Jewish of all the gospels? And that at that time, within the folds of Judaism, there were various religious expressions but probably the most prolific, the most vocal, the most numerically strong was the party of the Pharisees. And being the ones with the most control, that of course then put them on a collision course with Jesus' party. And in many ways, Matthew's gospel is a record of that struggle. 
Now, if you've been around church for any length of time at all, you'll probably have a very fair idea about the bad reputation that the Pharisees got. Because they were the antagonists of the gospel story. They were the religious right, the moral gatekeepers, the nitpicking legalists. They were the holier-than-thou hypocrites, the ones that at the altar reels, the ones that had the big black Bible on the dashboard of their cars. Did you know that their name literally means the separated ones? They had a reputation for being extremely pious and straight-laced and tighter than a lamb bag drum. Someone once described the Pharisee as a person with a haunting fear that somebody somewhere just might be happy. Now obviously there were some very good and sincere and devout people among them because the reason that they were so stringent was because they were dedicated to the law of God. And they thought that there was nothing about life on earth, not the least exchange between two people, not, not the simplest of meals, that was not covered by that law. And no one was more devoted to living out that holiness than the Pharisees were. And they cut themselves no slack, nor anyone else for that matter. And that's why they're often presented in the Gospels as being so picky and fault-finding and vigilant and so judgmental. And so they watched their company and their dress code and their diet and that of others as well. They tithed everything right down to the very spices that they put in their food. Their highbrow morality blinded them to their own neediness and it made them hard on others. Indeed, the mantra of one Pharisee to another might well have been, there is none so righteous as me and thee, and sometimes I worry about thee. <laughs> now, of course, that's going to put them at odds with Jesus, who in many ways was the opposite of everything that they stood for. and wasn't afraid to call them out for their sanctimoniousness or their hypocrisy. And Matthew's Gospel records the slugfest. And probably nowhere did that contest get so heated as in the matter of the Sabbath day. Now if you go on to read after the verses we read from Matthew 11, go on into the 12th chapter, you'll see a couple of stark examples of that. So the first occasion was when Jesus' friends were walking through fields of corn. Not like Theresa May running through the cornfields, but actually walking through the cornfields. And being hungry the disciples began to uh, pick some of the heads off the grain, of the corn, and began to eat them. And the Pharisees, who must have been patrolling those fields like the Sabbath day police, they were so indignant that they said, you're violating the Sabbath day, you're doing that which is not lawful. And they were very grumpy. And then if you read on down the chapter, the next occasion was when Jesus was in a synagogue, and there in the synagogue was a man with a deformity, he had a withered hand. And obviously, picking up on the situation and what Jesus was about to do, the Pharisees jumped in, all worked up, and they said, surely it's not right to heal anyone on the Sabbath day. So you're kind of getting the picture of what a bunch of fun it was to hang around with Pharisees. Why were they like this? Well, as you know, God gave through the law and through the creation mandate, the Sabbath, as the day of rest and holiness. But you know, as time went on, different groups interpreted that in different ways. And what the Pharisees did, coming from their very strict and austere reading of things, 
They developed this extensive set of laws so that people would know how to go about it and how not to violate the Sabbath. In fact, do you know that I read somewhere that they added on an additional 1,500 fence laws just to make sure everybody knew exactly where they stood. So imagine that, 1,500 extra hoops to jump through on the Sabbath day. Some of them were just plain outrageous. So for example, did you know that they said you could not walk a thousand day, uh, steps on the Sabbath day, but you could get as far as 999? They said you couldn't carry anything that weighed any heavier than two dry figs, because anything more than that would be denoted carrying a burden. They said that you couldn't swat a fly on the Sabbath, because that would be denoted as hunting. They said that you couldn't spit, because your spit would go into the dirt and disturb the dirt, and then you might be guilty of plowing. They said that you couldn't search your undergarments for vermin on the Sabbath day. <laughs> that health and safety report would have to wait to the next day. And probably the one that made me laugh the most was they said that a woman, a woman couldn't look at her reflection in a mirror on the Sabbath day because she might see a grey hair and be tempted to pluck it out and then that would be working. And I'm very glad they didn't say anything about men and grey hairs because that's a touchy subject these days. But can you see how fanatical and even farcical these Pharisees could be? And you know, at the root of it was their particular understanding about the requirements of faith and about the kind of yoke that God placed on humankind. And by their estimate, it was a very heavy yoke indeed. And do you know what? These Pharisees, they, they haven't died out. Because throughout the centuries, Phariseeism has continued to exist and persist and reinvent itself in a thousand different ways. For example, did you know, I was just reading this past week, that whenever the Puritans were in power in Parliament in England in the 1640s and 50s, that they tried to ban Christmas. They tried to get everyone to work on Christmas Day and have all the shops open. And they even went around London confiscating Roasting turkeys and roasting geese out of people's ovens. Think about that when you're sitting down to your Christmas dinner here on the 2nd of December. I want to show you a picture behind me here. It'll come up on the screen. But we were just talking with friends the other week about Balamina. And uh, you know, Balamina typically has been known as the buckle on the Bible belt in Northern Ireland. Someone was telling me that Ian Paisley actually wanted to make it the capital of the, of the, of the province at one time. Thank goodness for maybe anyone here from Balamina? Just, just get anything thrown at me. <laughs> Two proud Balaminians. Do you know the difference between a ghost and a Balamina man? A ghost will give you a scare, but a Balamina man will give you nothing. <laughs> but what this is, this is a picture. This is a picture actually... Uh, from Balamina in the 1960s, whenever they actually tied up children's swings and padlocked them so as to prevent them from desecrating the Sabbath day. That's how they understood at that time the requirements of faith. Now listen, I'm not, I'm not going to throw stones because this is something that I have to confess I was part of myself at one time. I've shared with you my own story before how I came to faith in my teenage years. And I really did come through an experience of radical love. But quickly I was involved in a very fastidious, legalistic, kind of evangelical church where Sunday observance was just something that you took for granted. You just didn't even question it. I didn't question it. 
And so you couldn't go to the shops on a Sunday and you didn't uh, play football on a Sunday and you always wore your Sunday go to meeting clothes for the morning and the evening service and everything was very strict and with the best will in the world I tried to follow it. As you know, I passed my driving test when I was 19 and the very first car I had was a rusty orange wee Vauxhall Nova. It was a bit of a pepper pot. You could always hear it five minutes before you could see it coming. And somebody told me one day that you can drive in the flashing red for up to 50 miles. And uh, it might come not as a surprise to any of you that I believe that. Well, I was coming home one Sunday from church and uh, flashing in the red, it passed out about three miles from the house. And you know what I did? <laughs> I locked it up, pulled her over, and I walked the whole three miles home rather than desecrating the Lord's day. And you know what the funniest bit of it all is? That where I actually conked out was about eight meters from a petrol station. And I sometimes wonder if the Lord kind of face plants himself <laughs> now when he thinks about that. It's easy to cringe, but you know, at the time, it was like we thought this was the requirements of the faith. What does it mean to belong to God? Well, how did Jesus answer his critics on these occasions? Well, when they were in the cornfields, he said back to them, and it's interesting, he used the Bible back at them. Always great when you can kind of disarm your critics by knowing the Bible better than they do. And he used the Bible and he said back to them, have you never read about King David? You know the man that you esteem so much? King David and his men, when they were hungry, how they went into the temple and they ate the showbread. You know that bread that's only reserved for the priests? They ate that. Now, at first glance, that's maybe a little bit confusing because you think, well, that's nothing to do with the Sabbath. But what he was saying was this, the human need is far more important than rules and regulations and protocols. And whenever those protocols get in the way of that, then they can be laid aside. And that must have been an astounding thing for those Pharisees to hear. And then when they were in the synagogue and they were about to jump all over him for wanting to heal the man with the withered hand, he said to them, and actually in Mark's gospel, it said he looked on them with anger. And he said to them, which of you, if you had a sheep that fell into a pit on the Sabbath day, would you not lift it out? Of course you would. How much better is a man than a sheep? In other words, what he's saying is, you've got this all wrong. You've got this back to front. Man wasn't made for the Sabbath. The Sabbath was made for the good of man. As a gift and a blessing and as a, a mechanism of happiness. And it's only a blessing that way if it meets the needs of people. If it becomes a heavy yoke to put around their neck and weigh them down, then you'd be better off without it. You see, where do we ever get this notion that God is like some kind of cosmic traffic warden? You know, keeping scores on people, checking every day to see how many times they park in his double yellow lines. It's the heavy yoke that religion places on people. It's one of those things that really seems to be a bee in my bonnet these days because it's a caricature. You know, it's a, it's a, it's a gross misrepresentation. And if you've ever had your character defamed, well then you know how terrible that can feel. Turns out that these Pharisees had such a wrong view of what God was like. As someone said, God made man in his image and then man returned the favor. And they projected onto him what they were like. 
punitive and exacting and overbearing and harsh. And they took something that he'd given as a gift to be enjoyed. And they turned it into a goat, into a slog. And that's what religion always does. Keeps on telling us, you have to do more. You have to be better. You have to try harder. You have to prove yourself worthy or you'll never qualify for the prize of God's love. It's precisely why religion is the most tiring, exhausting thing in all the world because it's never done. And you never know when it's ever, ever enough. And some of us in this room know what it's like to live in relationships like that. Whether with a parent or a partner or a boss or a manager. You know, you're constantly walking on eggshells because nothing you do is ever good enough. And you learn all the tricks to do for love. And someday those tricks work really well and then some days they don't. And I had a parent like that myself. And it's a hard thing to live under because you've always been dangled on the edge of disapproval. And sometimes that disapproval comes out with outright criticism. And sometimes what's even worse, withdrawal and silence. And then it just leaves you having your confidence all zapped away. And then what happens is that sometimes we automatically transfer that across and bring it into our relationship with God. And you kind of perceive of him as having a list of sorts of all the things that I ought to do and should do or had better do or he won't like me much anymore. And you know what that type of thinking does? It makes God really small and really demanding and tedious and it makes us really unhappy and slavish. Do you know what our table group this week, we were actually talking about how there's all the difference in the world between just a cognitive belief or a head knowledge of God and a real experience of him. And it's the real experience that makes the difference. Because, you know, I could know with my head, because I've always been told it, I could know with my head that honey is sweet. But it wouldn't be until I actually put that honey in my mouth and taste it for myself that I know how sweet it really is. A little boy could accept that his daddy loves him, but it's not until he felt, feels those strong arms wrapped around him that he has the real experience of it. And sometimes the distance from the head to the heart is the longest road we'll ever walk. But you know, we manage to get this back to front and we think that there are all these kinds of requirements to follow and all these rules to, to be met and burdens to bear, and then we'll be free to belong to God. When actually all that God ever asked is that we belong to him and everything else will follow out of that. And that's where the real joy and the real delight is. But sometimes, somehow we lose that. I was listening to a podcast this week of Philip Yancey. You know Philip Yancey? He wrote that book, What's So Amazing About Grace? And he talked about being brought up in a really Christian fundamentalist home where everything was so hardline. And when he and his brother decided to kind of go a different path in their teenage years, his mother came down on him like a ton of bricks and she said, I'm going to pray every day that God will bring you to your senses, even if he has to use, bring an accident into your life to crush you. Imagine that. And so as a result of that, he kind of became hard and defensive and cynical and questioning until he said there, were, there was something marvelous happening in his life. Not that God crushed him, but that God melted him. And he melted them in three ways. Number one, through the, the, the glories of the creation around him. Number two, through the beauty of classical music. 
And number three, through the power of romantic love. And through those avenues, it was almost like God paved the way to introduce himself to Philip Yancey. Or we could talk about C.S. Lewis, you know, or the Belfast-born agnostic professor at Oxford. And he said that, <laughs> he said that um, the great angler cast for his fish and I never dreamed that the hook was in my mouth. And do you remember what he called this book? Not surprised, not by fear. Surprised by joy. Surprised by joy. And it's such an incredible thing to have an experience of his grace like that. You know, I remember one September, uh, quite a few years ago now, maybe about seven years ago, my own personal life, I felt as low as a whale's belly. It was the lowest I'd ever been. I kind of had a crash on burn season. And it was mostly my own fault. I had more to do than any one person could do. And I wasn't very good at saying no one I liked to be like, liked. And so carrying a heavy load seemed to be the best way to get both of those. And carrying it alone worked even better because then I didn't have to share the rewards or the limelight with anyone else. And look, I wouldn't have admitted it at the time and I still don't even like admitting it now. But somehow I had the idea that God expected more of me than other people and I couldn't let God down. And so while going about melting snow in everybody else's life, I found myself totally snowed in. And then add to that the fact that I had just been burned out after five years of reparative therapy, trying to pray away the gay and desperately, frantically trying to change in me what I was told needed to be changed, but actually never needed to be changed in the first place. And I, so I remember one Monday morning just not being able to get out of bed. Just not being able to get out of bed. And I was off on leave for nearly six weeks after that. And you know, at the start of those six weeks, I had a, a long list of things to do. I had a pile of books that needed read. But as the days and the weeks wore on, I, they lay there gathering dust. And strangely, they began to lose their power over me. So instead of rushing to get up at the alarm clock, I would lay there, let, lie on there for a while, listening to the birds. Or just watching how the sunlight moved across the ceiling as the morning wore on to mid-morning. Instead of rushing about, charging out the gate in the morning, I found myself, and I love this word, sauntering. I slept a lot. I ate a lot. And I went to the shops. And I took long walks along the beach and in the forest. And I thought deeply about what really mattered in life. And about how temporal it all is. And I spent more time with my family than I'd done in years. And you know, for the first time in ages, prayer didn't feel like a burden. In fact, some days I just lay there in God's arms. And I lived as though I were free. And it felt like all my Sabbath IOUs had come at once. And it was such an easy time. And something happened that I didn't expect. Joy came back. Life came back again. And looking back, I see that that now was the beginning of a long stone, the beginning of the end of a long stony road that I'd been on and the emergence of a new one. 
And I know today not all of us can take six weeks out of our lives like that, but maybe the invitation to the rhythms of Sabbath is an invitation to begin to experience that a little. You see, some of us, we won't voluntarily choose the easy yoke. It has to be compelled upon us. It's almost like we naturally gravitate toward the hard one. But whenever you experience the easy one, you'll never want to go back. Maybe this idea of Sabbath delight is meant to be a symbol of that. You know, I love the idea in Genesis 1 of God delighting in the work of Sabbath day. So according to the Genesis poem, he'd made everything over the six days, the sea, the rocks, the purple-headed mountains, the squirrels, the grouse, man came from the dust. And he called it all good, very good. And then he rested and he delighted in his work, not because he was burned out, but because it brought him so much joy. Did you know the wisest of all the old rabbis, they used to teach their people that this is what it was meant to emulate the Sabbath. Actually, contrary to what the Pharisees taught, the Sabbath was meant to be a delight, the best day of the week. A day to rest and feast and play and dance and sing and tell stories and make love, yes. Indeed, did you know that in the Jewish Talmud, it actually gave the command for every couple to make love every Friday night. And about half the room are really glad to hear me saying that. And about half the room have just fallen out with me. <laughs> it was to be a celebration of goodness and beauty, not a religious chore. And then Jesus comes along and he says, and you know what? This is a window, this Sabbath, it's a window into the kind of life that I came to bring. A life of joy and depth, color and purpose and meaning, an easy yoke. Now, of course, I've just been assuming this whole time that you all know what a yoke is. It's nothing to do with eggs. It's a symbol from the world of agriculture. You may not know, but actually, traditionally, there were two types of yokes that were used to bear burdens. We're going to put a picture of them up behind. The first one was a single yoke and then a shared yoke. Single ones were like a yoke placed across the shoulders and buckets hung from poles on either side And they were often used to carry water from the well, maybe. A single yoke can be a very efficient one. A person could almost carry about as much as a donkey could with a single yoke. But you know the problem with a single yoke is you'll tire out easily. You'll get exhausted really quickly. Your shoulders will ache all the time. Your back may even well give out. So yeah, you may be able to move loads under a single yoke but the cost can be tremendous. A shared yoke, however, is totally different. A shared yoke requires two creatures, not one. The picture there is of two oxen plowing a field and there's one yoke between them. And you know if those two are a well-matched pair, then they can go all day and not fall out with exhaustion. Under a shared yoke, one can pull a little while the other rest a little. They can take turns bearing the brunt of the load. They can cover for each other because the yoke is a shared one. And not only that, but there's company all day long, not alone. And when the day is done, they might both be tired, but neither is exhausted because they too are a team. 
And there's all the difference between a single and a shared yoke. Maybe there's someone here today and you've lived your whole life under the illusion that your yoke is a single one and that you've got to go it alone. That you've got to bear all these heavy burdens. That the only kind of way to make your life count is to load yourself down with all these heavy requirements and try to be something that you know you cannot be and it's just exhausting and draining. And maybe all the while Jesus is standing in front of you with half a shared yoke across his shoulder and the other half wide open and waiting for you. A yoke that requires no more than that you'll step into it and become a team. And it is a standing invitation and only you can answer. But what if, like C.S. Lewis, you might be up for the surprise of your life? Now I'm going to ask Matt to come up and prepare to lead us in communion. But as we do, I just want to finish with one final story. But one of my most favorite authors to read is an American writer called Annie Lamott. Some of you may have heard of her. She wrote the book Traveling Mercies. She wrote the book Hallelujah Anyway. She wrote Grace Eventually. Annie Lamott grew up in a family with many signs of prestige and power. Very affluent, very well-to-do. She said they were the kind of folks that give help, not receive it. She writes, I was raised by my parents to believe that you had the moral obligation to try and save the world. God forbid that someone should ever think that I needed help. I was a Lamott. Lamotts give help, not take it. But as she went on in her life, Annie found that she fell into total disarray. She became addicted to alcohol and crack cocaine. She had an affair with a married man and then the outcome of that was an abortion and her life just fell apart at the seams. And though she had no kind of church background, she felt herself kind of being drawn to faith and to God. And this was a prospect that she said she found, quote, appalling. I thought about my life and my brilliant progressive friends. I thought about what everybody else would think of me if I started to believe. And it seemed an utterly impossible thing that simply could not be allowed to happen. I turned to the wall and said out loud, I would rather die. But one week later I went back to church and I was so hungover that I couldn't even stand up for the songs. And this time I stayed for the sermon, which I thought was the, just so ridiculous, like someone trying to convince me of the existence of extra, extraterrestrials. But then the last song was so deep and so raw and so pure that I could not escape. And it was as if the people were singing my name in between the notes. And I felt like their voices or something was rocking me in its bosom, holding me like a scared kid. And I opened up to the feeling and it washed over me. And I began to cry. And then I took a long deep breath and said out loud, all right, you can come in. And she said that was the beautiful moment of her conversion. And you know that day marked both an end and a beginning for Annie Lamott, an end of a life without God, an end of a life of very self-destructive behavior. In the beginning of a new life with God, 
the beginning of a life held in the love of a particular congregation, a particular community of folks who became her new spiritual family. And hope, fresh, living, buoyant hope, got born straight into her heart. And now she says she writes not to try and convert anybody, but just to share how her experience of strength and hope can show that someone who is as messed up and as scarred and as scared as her can be fully accepted by our dear Lord. No questions asked. Can we all stand together? Let's all stand. Matt's going to lead us in a song in a moment. And uh, we're going to just read. There's going to be some words on the screen. We're going to read them together. The call to the communion table. So let's read this together as we prepare to sing. This is the table, not of the church, but of God. It is to be made ready for those who love God and who want to love God more. So come, you who have much faith and you who have little. You who have been here often and you who have not been for a long time. You who have tried to follow and you who have failed. Come, not because I invite you. It is God and it is God's will that you who want God should meet God here. I'm going to ask Jude and Glenn, would you mind giving out the emblems for us this morning? And please, as, the, as we're singing this song, come forward. If you feel that tug in your heart and you'd like to join with us in this communion celebration, you are so welcome to participate this morning. <laughs>